Good morning again. How are we doing? It's great to see you. Welcome to New Creation Fellowship this morning. Today we are continuing our, our series on the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. We'll be looking uh, through verses 19 through 34 uh, this morning. And uh, just by way of review for those that maybe haven't been here for the whole series, uh, the book obviously starts with the creation account, uh, then is followed by like 10 generational uh, histories. They include, among others, uh, obviously the history of creation and Adam and Noah and Terah, the father of Abraham, Abraham. And now today we look at uh, Isaac, the son uh, of Abraham. And we've seen in previous messages, Isaac was the son promised to Abraham and Sarah. And, and it's through Abraham's descendants that, or through the son, that, that would become a, uh, there would become a great nation. So, so after a super long time uh, of being unable to conceive, uh, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And, and Sarah and, and Abraham were, were old at this point. And so before Abraham passes away, he arranged his servant to go back to the homeland to get a wife for Isaac. And so the servant comes back with Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah get married. Rebekah was a comfort to Isaac. And Isaac loved Rebekah deeply. Somewhat of a fairy tale romance, but then as it always does, before happily ever after can set in, right? Life happens, uh, reality takes a bite, and things get crazy. They get complicated. And as I said from the beginning of the series, if you think the Bible is a collection of stories about good people doing good things all the time, get ready to be surprised. Because today... In this story, it's an example of that. Uh, Isaac's about 40 years old when he and Rebecca get married. And like Sarah, uh, Rebecca has trouble conceiving. We saw in the last message that, that Isaac was a man of prayer. And he was a man that, that just kind of poured his heart out to God. And so he does that. And he, he's asking the Lord to give him children. The Lord answers his prayer. And when Isaac is about 60, the Lord gives him not one son, but two. They have twins. While Rebecca is pregnant, she can feel the struggle going on within here. Remember, no ultrasounds back then. Right? So, just had to figure that out. The Lord says to her in verses 23 and 24, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Then verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Story continues, verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called him his name Esau. And after his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Esau's name means 
Harry, and Jacob's name means he grabs the heel in common vernacular. It means one who deceives. So you get the impression that Isaac and Rebecca waited like the last minute to name these two kids. Boys grow up, become very different people. Esau was a skillful hunter who loved the outdoors. Jacob, on the other hand, was quiet and preferred to stay at home. And even though as parents they knew they shouldn't do this, Esau becomes Isaac's favorite. Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. We know from the text today that one day after having been out in the fields, Esau comes home empty-handed, hungry, finding Jacob to be cooking a pot of stew, red stew, his favorite stew. Esau goes, hey, let me have some of that stew you're making there, Jake. Jacob says this. Sure, under one condition. Sell me your birthright. See, in those days, a birthright was a very serious matter. In addition to the status of being the oldest, which was a big deal back then, the oldest son receives twice as much inheritance as everyone else does, which meant if there are two sons, the inheritance would be divided three ways. The oldest son getting two shares, the youngest son getting one share. And when your dad is as as wealthy as Isaac was, it's a chunk of change we're talking about. And Jacob knew that the birthright was valuable and he wanted it. And so passages like Deuteronomy 21 and 1 Chronicles 5 tell us that the birthright involved both material and spiritual dynamics. Not only was it about the double portion of the inheritance, he also became head of the family and the spiritual leader upon the passing of the father. So Esau's thought wasn't that he was so hungry that he would die without food. Instead, the idea was this, that I will die one day anyway, so what good is a birthright to me? It says in verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. And and then look at the last line here. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So can I just say that none, none of these players in our story today are squeaky clean, right? Jacob was guilty of scheming in the flesh to gain something that God said was already his. And yet, we should remember the far greater blame was placed on Esau, who what? Despised his birthright. Martin Luther said this about, that, about this story, and, and it's an important fact. This was not a valid transaction because Jacob tried to purchase what was already his, and Esau tried to sell something that didn't belong to him. So Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, and Esau thought uh, very little of the spiritual heritage connected to his birthright. He valued only the material things. And and so the spiritual birthright meant very little to him. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking how many people today despise their birthright. Write down in your notes Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14. 
Because it shows us a, a, a plethora of riches that are ours by our birthright in Christ. Like every spiritual blessing, the blessing of being chosen in Jesus, adoption into God's family, complete acceptance by God in Jesus, redemption from our slavery to sin, true and total forgiveness, the riches of God's grace, the revelation and the knowledge of the mystery of God's will, an eternal inheritance, and the guarantee of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the text tells us. And I just think far many people neglect or trade away that birthright for cheap entertainment or passing pleasures. There are some things that we can learn from this event. And I think one of the things that we can take from this story is a theological concept that has been debated for centuries. And it is the question of predestination. And I don't think that in a 30-minute sermon, I'm going to give like the final word on this by any stretch of the imagination, right? But I'm going to take a swing at it this morning. And I want you just to think about it for a little bit. And maybe if you're here and you don't know what that is, you'll be introduced to this theological concept. And I already know this, right? Like I already know that people are going to agree with me this morning, they're going to disagree with me this morning. They're going to think I go too far, they're going to think I don't go far enough. Right? So you can email me and we'll figure it out later. All right, Romans 8, verses 29 and 30 says this, For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And then in Ephesians 1, 5 and verse 11, it says he predestined us to be adoption uh, as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And I, and I understand people have a hard time with this doctrine, right? I get it. However, predestination is a biblical doctrine. And, and I think the key to understanding what this is about and what it means uh, biblically is we got to just dive in a little bit. And so the word translated predestined in the scriptures are from this Greek word which carries the meaning of determining beforehand, of ordaining, of deciding ahead of time. And so predestination is God determining certain things to occur ahead of time. So what did God determine ahead of time well the passage i just read out of romans 8 says that god predetermined certain individuals would be conformed to the likeness of his son uh, to be called to be justified and to be glorified that's what the text says and there's numerous amounts of scripture refer that refers to believers in Christ being chosen, Matthew 24, 22 and 31, Mark 13, 20, Romans 8, 33, 9, 11, 11, 5, I go on and on. I got a list here in my notes. 
And here's the most common objection to the doctrine of predestination, and that is, is that it's unfair. Why would God choose certain individuals and not others? Right? I think the important thing to remember here is that no one deserves to be saved. Right? We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. We're all worthy of eternal punishment, Romans 6. And as a result, God would be perfectly just in allowing all of us to spend eternity in hell. However, God chooses to save some of us. And he's not being unfair to those who are not chosen because they're receiving what they deserve. God's choosing to be gracious to some is not unfair to the others. No one deserves anything from God. Therefore, no one can object if he doesn't receive anything from God. Here's the illustration to help you understand a little bit. It would be like if a man randomly handing out money to five people in a crowd of 20. Would the 15 people who did not receive money be upset? Probably. But would they have the right to be upset? No. They do not. Why? Because the man did not owe anyone money. He simply decided to be gracious to some. If God is choosing who is saved, doesn't, that doesn't undermine our free will to choose and to believe in Christ. The Bible says that we do have choice. All who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved, Romans 10, verse 9. The Bible never describes God rejecting anyone who believes in him or, or turning away anyone who is seeking him. Somehow in the mystery of God, predestination works hand in hand with the person being drawn by God and believing unto salvation. And God predestines those who will be saved and we, and we must choose Christ in order to be saved. And in my thinking, both of those facts are equally true. That being said, I think there are some things that we, we can learn from the event today or from our story today. Specifically about making choices and decisions. And this story is a perfect example of bad decisions running out of control. And we make, I think, hundreds. I was going to look this up, but I forgot to this week. But I think we make hundreds and maybe even thousands of decisions and choices each day. We're always making choices, but we're not always, what, choosing well. And sometimes we choose recklessly. Sometimes we're impulsive. Sometimes we're careless. So some of our decisions will make a very big difference in, in, in our lives, right? Just ask Ronald Wayne. You know who he is? Ronald Wayne, for 12 days, was 10% owner of a fleeting company with two amb very ambitious business partners in Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. In 1976, he owned 10% of the Apple Corporation. He even designed their first logo. But he was worried that some of Apple's debt might fall on him personally. So he decided to sell and sold his 10% for $800. Today, that 10% of the Apple Corporation, you ready for this? $95 billion. That's with the beef. Now, I'm not saying his choice was right or wrong, because money isn't everything, 
But if you have a choice, which one are you choosing? Just saying. All I can say is I hope that he spent the 800 bucks on something he really liked. Right? It's the same thing I would say to Esau. Hope that was some really good stew, bro. Right? Because it cost you a lot. What can we learn from Jacob and Esau, Rebecca and Jacob, when it comes to making better choices, better decisions in our day-to-day lives? Go ahead and take your note sheets out. You can follow along with me this morning. Three things to think about. Number one, we need to take responsibility for our decisions. There are, there are times in Scripture when God foreknows that an individual will do the wrong thing, but there's never a time in Scripture when somebody wants to do the right thing that God refuses to let him do it. Our decisions are our own, and we need to be ready to own them. And God said this to Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that, that you and your offspring may live. And though the choice belonged to Israel, God cared about what they chose. When Moses pled with Israel, crying out to them, choose life, we know that he reflected the heart of God towards Israel. And and how God glorified himself through Israel was up to them, and they had to take responsibility for their choice. But it was obviously God's preference that, that he glorify himself through an obedient, blessed Israel. So he pleads with them. Man today, even outside of the old covenant, is confronted with the the choice. But the choice focuses first not on will I obey God or not, but on will I trust in Jesus for my standing before God. Jesus said, who is not with me is against me. And, And he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is still asking us the question, who do you say that I am? And from our perspective, that choice and answering that question determines our eternal destiny, and we got to take responsibility for that. Brings me to the second principle that I want to bring to your attention this morning, and that is decisions have consequences. So in every decision we make, we should be mindful of the fact that there are consequences to that decision. And sometimes we go through life, and we make decisions as if there were no consequences. When we sit down at the dinner table, for example, or when we have a credit card in our hands, or when we talk to our children or our spouse, sometimes we kid ourselves into thinking that, that this time there won't be any consequences for what I am about to, to do or, or say. Maybe that's what Esau thought. Look at verses 29 to 33 with me. Once Jacob was cooking the stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him, and he sold him his birthright to Jacob. Now, I'm sure that Esau, here's what he's thinking. Esau's thinking, I have a huge advantage over my brother. I mean, tradition's tradition, right? The firstborn gets the bigger share. And besides, he ultimately knew it was up to Isaac, and we all know which kid Isaac liked the most. Maybe Isaac thought that he could have his cake and eat it too, or Esau thought he could have his cake and eat it too. 
Or maybe to be more precise, he thought he could have a stew in his inheritance too. Maybe he thought there would be no lasting consequence to a silly decision his brother pressured him into making. But as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he was, he was dead wrong about that. So let's not kid ourselves into thinking that anything in life is a lock. Don't kid yourself into thinking that your bad decisions won't catch up to you. They will. And without God's help through those tough times, they can get dicey. So the takeaway here is not to make decisions lightly. Because each one of them sets a path to somewhere. All right, the last principle this morning is our decisions matter. Like, like who knows what the future holds? Who cares? I'm hungry now, right? That's what Esau would say. Who, who knows what the future will hold? I could be liable for somebody else's debt, or I can cash in and take the 800 bucks for 12 days of work, which was not bad in 1976 probably. Point is, it's easy to find fault in, for, in Esau for selling his birthright and for Mr. Wayne for missing out on Apple, but what about our own in-the-moment decisions? Are they based on what matters most? Are they based on a temporary panic or are they based on a long-term priority? I know individuals who have created a happy marriage and a good family for a meaningless, ultimately worthless fling. I know people who have traded financial stability for a few superficial symbols of prestige that they really can't afford to impress people they really don't like. I know individuals that have gone through making life decisions based on what feels good right now and what's easiest right now, what I, what I can get away with right now. And that's how I believe you miss out on God's blessings. And what about Isaac and Rebecca's priorities? They both made choices based on what was easy. They both had their preferred son. And as parents, we know that that's not right. But it may be the easiest thing to do, right? Then look at Jacob. His behavior in the story isn't exactly commendable, right? He's manipulating his brother. But he does get one part right. At least he's thinking about the future, right? He's not thinking about the next meal. He's thinking about the next generation. Esau, on the other hand, verse 34 says what? He despised his birthright. The future didn't matter to him at all. So, so when you and I make decisions, we need to ask ourselves, is this, is this something that matters now or does it matter in eternity? Is it temporal or, or is it a permanent priority? Apostle Paul said this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. He's saying, he's saying to focus on what matters for all eternity, not what only matters today. No one in this story is a perfect role model of faith. And yet God loves each of them. What is that? Y'all hear that? <laughs> right? They're not a perfect role model of faith, and yet God loved each of them. He worked through each of them. He included them in his plan and his purpose for the people of Israel, which is really very good news for us. Because we are not perfect either. And we come into each situation with our own baggage. And we often go about doing things in misguided ways. But I want you to know, you know what? God loves you. And he can use you. And he wants to bless you. 
And he works through you in spite of our imperfections. And it's not because you're perfect. It's not even because you're worthy. It's because of the full mercy of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. In our daily lives, let's make the best choices that we can. Remembering, taking responsibility for our decisions. Decisions that have consequences and decisions that matter. So I want to encourage all of us today, don't despise your birthright. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for using this story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau just the, to demonstrate to us the importance of trusting in you and reminding us that it's not due to our own merit or character or our accomplishments that we've been saved, but it is by your goodness and your grace. So God, give us the grace to carry out your will for our lives. God, our desire is to fit into your sovereign plans and your purposes. And in doing that, that we would give you praise and you glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.